0: Our text for today is from our first reading, Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. I'll be showing the verses on the screen this morning, but if you'd like to grab a Bible and dig in and see the context there, Revelation chapter 2 is found on page 1,028 of our church Bibles, 1,028. As we continue on our series, Jesus Speaks. Two things that Jesus is showing us in our verses and our text for today. First of all, he is showing us that things are much much worse than they seem. At the same time, Jesus is showing us that things are so so much better than they appear. That's going to be our focus for this morning. Let's open up with a prayer. O Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the very beginning of all things you spoke. And by the sheer power of your voice and your words, all things were brought into existence out of nothing. And it is that same omnipotent, all-powerful, all-loving, creative word that is before us today. Your voice, O Lord, speak and change us. Be with the one who dares to preach and teach with all of us who are growing in grace. Give us ears to hear. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The New Testament is comprised mostly of letters, as we talked about in the kids' message. Aside from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the book of Acts, The New Testament is comprised mostly of letters written to churches or individuals of the first century A.D., and they were written by leaders of the church, apostles, people who had seen the living, resurrected Christ But there was one place in the Bible, one place and one place alone in the New Testament where we have actual letters sent to actual churches of the first century, about 96 AD. They were written and sent out. And these letters were not written by one of the early church leaders who had seen the resurrected Christ. Rather, these letters were written by the resurrected living Christ himself. And we find these letters, seven in total, in Revelation chapters two and three. These were letters that were imparted, given, by Christ to his disciple John. John is now an elderly man. He's the last of the disciples who is left alive. He's on an island in the Mediterranean Sea, a small little island. It's a Roman prison camp, a brutal life. He's been exiled there. And Jesus gives to him these seven letters to seven churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, We saw last week we began with a letter that Jesus sent to the church in Ephesus. Today is the letter he sent to the church in Smyrna. Next week is Pergamon, and then Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Seven letters to seven real churches, and it's not an accident that Jesus happened to send seven letters to seven churches. There was a lot more than just seven churches by 96 AD. Seven, as you probably know, is a highly and important symbolic number in the Bible, and especially in the book of Revelation. Seven, that number is symbolic of completion and of God's perfection. And by sending seven letters to seven churches, what Jesus is saying to us here today is that these letters, though they were written and composed and sent in 96 A.D., they are indeed universal in scope. These are the words of Christ for his people, for the church of all times and of all places. In other words, what we have in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 are letters written by Jesus to you. And to us, to the members of our Father Lutheran Church in Centennial, dot, dot, dot. And as we said last week, we've been through a year and a half. We're still in the midst of a lot of turmoil and pandemic and everything that's going on. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of businesses. There's a lot of churches that are hurting. And there are some churches who will not survive, who will have to close their doors. And our Father, on the other hand, has been richly blessed throughout this year and a half. And we are healthy and strong. We believe for a reason. Why are we doing so well? Why are all of you here? And the blessing of our congregation, there's a reason. That's a big question that's before us here in our ministry year, is God, what do you want us to do? How should we respond? Where are you leading us? And before I was going to get a group of people together and get out our dry erase board and our big, large, sticky notes and start putting a bunch of ideas and brainstorming out and think of all our great thoughts, I said the first thing we need to do is stop as a congregation. Stop and listen as Jesus speaks to us today. So we began this exercise and this study last week, again, the church in Ephesus, and there Jesus, what he was saying to us, is showing us that we are called to rekindle, to revive, to continue to seek out what he describes as our first love, the love that we were made for, and that's a relationship with him. And to pursue that passionately, because he is passionate for us. Our second letter, this letter to the church in Smyrna, is a little bit different. Smyrna you can kind of tell from the map, it's 35 miles north of Ephesus. It's along the seacoast, the Aegean Sea. Smyrna was about 100,000 people in population by 96 AD. Smyrna was a jewel in the crown of the Roman Empire. Smyrna had been a part of the Roman Empire for a long time by 96 AD, for over 200 years. And Smyrna, even more than Ephesus, if you were here last week, Smyrna was a center for what was called the imperial cult that is the cult of the emperor the Roman emperor in other words it was a center of worship of the Roman empire by 96 AD his name was Domitian and he celebrated he cultivated even commanded his subjects within the Roman empire to claim that he was their lord he was their savior and he was a god and they were to revere him as one. And Smyrna, ever since about 27 A.D., had shrines and temples devoted to the Roman emperor. And you can only imagine what it was like to be a Christian in this small church in this city because the Christians could not and would not say that the Caesar, the Roman emperor, was their lord, their savior, and a god because it was Christ alone. the persecution was great and so into their particular context in Smyrna and to our context here today in this letter Jesus is showing us again these two things first of all I really hate it when that doesn't instantly go First of all, he is saying to them and to us that things are much, much worse than they seem or appear. And at the same time, he is also saying to them and to us that things are so much better, infinitely better than they seem as well. Things are much worse, and at the same time, things are much better than they seem To us. That's our focus. Let's dig in first of all that things seem so much worse. Rather, things are much worse than they seem. And we're going to start with verse 9. In verse 9, Jesus says this I know your tribulation and your poverty. I know your tribulation and your poverty. Tribulation here, the Greek word, can be translated as, I know the great pressure in which you live. The pressure, Christians in Smyrna, to conform, to give in to the governing authorities. The pressure to forsake Christ To forsake me, Jesus is saying, and to bow down at least outwardly, if not inwardly, to worship the Roman Emperor. I know the pressure, the tribulation that you are enduring. I know the pressure of the constant, every day, every moment of your life, fear that you might be beaten, you might be arrested, you might be killed for your faith in me. And then he says, I know your tribulation and I know your poverty. Because not only to be a Christian in Smyrna and other places in the Roman Empire was to be at odds with the government and the governing authorities, but to be at odds with the entire Roman society. Christians, what are you doing? You better worship the emperor like we do. You're going to cause havoc within our culture and with our society as Romans. And the Christians there would have been cut off from business connections and ties. They would have been cut off from the marketplace. They would have been cut off from the culture and the society and left to fend for themselves. And they were, especially in Smyrna, very, very impoverished for their faith in Jesus. And Jesus is saying, I know that. I know the pressure, the tribulation, and your poverty. But then Jesus goes on to show them and us that as bad as all of that is on the surface, that there actually was something even worse, much worse, that was happening. And we see this in verse 10. Verse 10, Jesus says, Behold... The devil is about to throw some of you into prison. So Jesus is foretelling what is about to happen to them. You're going to end up in prison. And he says, behold, the devil is about to throw you into prison. The word behold, very important in the Bible. It means to pay attention, to look, and to lurk not just with our earthly or natural eyes, but with supernatural eyes. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. You say, wait a second, the devil is about to throw you? You can see the red guy in the jumpsuit with the pitchfork and the little horns and he's throwing people into prison. No, because they're saying, look, it's not what the devil, it's the Roman centurions and the soldiers and those are the people that have been heart hurting us and throwing us into prison. And by saying the devil is the one who's actually throwing you into prison, Jesus is saying this, that there is a deeper spiritual reality and conflict and warfare that is actually happening it's not just the Romans it's not just an earthly government there are spiritual forces of evil that actually are at work it's called spiritual warfare and on an average Tuesday or Wednesday going about our routines, how often are we aware that there is a battle, a spiritual battle taking place every day and every moment of your life for your eternal destiny? St. Paul, about 40 years before this, wrote a letter to the Christians in Ephesus, and this is what he wrote. He says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We're not simply wrestling or struggling with a Roman centurion, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul is saying here, and it goes along with what Jesus is showing us in Revelation 2, that it isn't simply the Roman Empire or outward problems or afflictions that we have. There's something deeper that is taking place. But Paul is saying here, it's not merely the Roman Empire that's your problem. You know the Roman Empire, the most powerful, the most deadly empire the history of the world has ever known. No, no, no. It's not only or simply or merely the Roman Empire. There is another empire. There are other forces. There is another kingdom that is far more powerful and far more deadly and serious than just that. The Roman Empire, that's nothing compared to the spiritual forces of evil. And that is what is that work in our lives around us every single day Christian, especially Christian and most of our lives we are what blissfully unaware dangerously unaware that things are much worse and serious than they seem Because I think, for us today, it's not something as obvious as the Roman Empire and Roman centurions. But it's more like the fact that so many of us are so often more concerned or worried about what other people think about us than what God thinks about us. Or that someone at church 10 years ago was mean to me, and so I don't go to church anymore because they're a bunch of hypocrites. Or, you know, the pastor, I didn't tell the church that I was in the hospital, and now I'm mad that no one from the church visited me in the hospital. That's a thing. That's a thing that happens. Or laying in this bed and this pillow is so nice. And I'd, look, I'll, I I. know I need to go to church. I'll catch it on the live stream later. I know I should get up and have my quiet time and my prayer time with Jesus, but I just need to sleep. It is so subtle. That is spiritual warfare. And it can come in more obvious ways of a, of a physical attack or illness or great suffering, but spiritual forces of evil. Peter says in one of his letters that your enemy, your adversary, the devil prowls around like a what? What? a roaring lion seeking whom he will devour. Do you believe that or not? He would love for you to not believe that. It's a little kitty cat. Things are, first of all, much worse than they seem. But then secondly what Jesus is saying to us and showing us is that brothers and sisters things are so much better than they seem and that they they appear to us in our earthly life if we see with eyes of faith. There's so many wonderful things here. We're going to just go back up to the very uh, beginning of our text verse 8 and look at what Jesus says here. Verse 8 Jesus says, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, angel angelos in Greek, it simply means messenger. This might be an actual supernatural heavenly being called an angel, but the messenger of Smyrna, this angel could also have been their pastor or their bishop. So to the pastor or the bishop, the angel of the church in Smyrna write, and these are the words of Jesus, the words of the first and the last who died and who came to life. This is Jesus identifying himself as the author of this letter, and he is identifying himself as the first and the last. Now what does that mean? The first and the last, you've also heard it this way, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning of the Greek alphabet and the end of the Greek alphabet. I'm the A to Z, I'm the first, the last. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it means Jesus is the first. That is, he is the one who by his spirit brought you to faith. He is the one who has worked in your life and brought you to faith. He's the first. He's also the last in the sense that he is the object of your faith and the goal of your faith to be with him forever. The first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. It also means that Jesus was there at the very beginning of creation of all things. He was the first. He was there. And it also means that Jesus as the last is going to be there on that very last day of resurrection when he returns. And what does that mean? If Jesus was there at the beginning and Jesus is there at the end, he's the first and the last, it means that Jesus is there every single moment of your life, everything in between everything in between it means that Jesus never shows up late and Jesus never has to go home early you call me as a pastor and the emergency phone pastor, my loved one is in the hospital, my husband, my wife, my child, my parent, and I get in my clothes and I drive the car and sometimes I will get there in time, but sometimes I will arrive too late and your loved one has already passed and I hate that as a pastor. Or I'll be there with you and your family in your grief and your sorrow, but I have a wife and a child and at some point I have to go home. Jesus never shows up late and he never goes goes home early he is the first and the last he's with you always and he knew you since the moment of your conception in your mother's womb he knew and loved you and delighted in you and he will be there in that moment when you breathe your final breath that moment that is so scary to us and jesus says don't be afraid i'm right there with you The first and the last. And he says, I'm the one who died and came to life. Isn't that wonderfully the opposite of the entire construct of the way we think about our lives? He says, I died and I came to life. The way we think is we were born and then we die. And Jesus says, no, Christian, because of my death for you and my resurrection for you, you are ones who have died and you've come to life. And that gift of everlasting everlasting, everlasting life He's fired up today, isn't he, honey? Yes, he is. You already have it. It's yours. Everlasting life. You have died. And you have come back to life again in Jesus Christ. That means nothing, no suffering, death itself cannot harm you. You are more than a conqueror. It means death is a gardener. It means that the more death tries to slay you, the higher it raises you. That's verse 8. Verse 9, Jesus says this. We saw this just a moment ago, but look at it again. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but Jesus goes on to say, But you are rich. Oh, I know you're impoverished according to the world's standards, but Christians in Smyrna, Christians in Centennial, you are so rich. Remember when Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He means that. That's not just poetry. And the scriptures tell us that we are co-heirs with Jesus of the heavenly kingdom. I know that's abstract, but it means you truly are an heir of all of the riches of God, his glory, his holiness, his very presence. And he says this, words we can pass over real quick, I know your tribulation and your poverty. I know Jesus is saying. I know it. There was a pilot in World War II. He was coming back from a bombing mission to his air base in the north of Africa. And he was flying over, alone, over the Mediterranean Sea. Obviously, he survived this because he lived to tell the tale. This is a true story. But he was over the Mediterranean Sea and his engine started to fail. And his plane started to go down into the Mediterranean Sea and he knew he was going to die. And as he tells the story, he says, it's not like my life flashed before my eyes or I had any of these kind of thoughts. He said, the only thing that I was thinking about was this. Nobody knows. Nobody knows where I am. Nobody knows what's happening to me. Nobody knows that I'm about to die. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. He was so alone. This past year, I've had medical problems. I've had a lot of lower back problems. i got an icy hot patch on my back right now. It's not doing super great, but there it is I've had inner ear problems dizziness sat on a stool for several sermons and then on top of that one thing and another and these aren't huge things they aren't huge things but then on top of that I got what's called tinnitus it's a it was for me a loud constant ringing in my ears all day long every day day after day after day week after week after week keep me up at night. I wasn't sleeping. And the doctor, oh, there's nothing we can do. It was starting to drive me crazy. Loud, constant. And the worst thing was that I was the only one who could hear it. I remember thinking, I I wish I had a gash in my arm. I wish I had, I wish I was losing a limb. At least people could see and know and understand. Only I could hear it. And I felt at a few times really alone because no one knew or understood Jesus here says no i know no one else might know no one else might understand but i know i understand and i am with you if you ever feel alone if you ever feel like no one understands no one understands what i'm going jesus knows and then verse 10. Verse 10, he says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Jesus says, Hey, I'm going to tell you, the devil is about to throw you in prison. Don't be afraid. Why? The devil's throwing me in prison and I'm not supposed to be ever. Your fear is not warranted. Your fear is not correct. He says, Why? Because it's for 10 days that you will have tribulation. Now, what does this mean, 10 days? Well, 10, very similar to the number seven, is very symbolic. And like seven, it means completion. When Jesus says 10 days, what he is saying? There is a set, prescribed, foreordained by my kingly sovereignty amount of time in which you will suffer. I am not causing the suffering, but I am using the suffering. I take suffering, I take evil, I take Satan himself and use it against himself. And there is a beginning and there is an end. Ten days, i.e. I am sovereignly working through it to do something in your life more amazing and beautiful and glorious than you can possibly imagine. And 10 days also was an expression in the Greek language, idiomatic expression, for just any time you meant just a short time. How long is that going to take? And we would say, oh, just a couple days, a day or so. And they would say, 10 days. That's just how they talked. And so Jesus is using that. In other words, he's saying your suffering is going to be very, very limited for a purpose and a reason, and it's going to be really short. You could suffer your entire life. You could suffer year after year after year, but in this, Jesus means that compared, in comparison to the glory that's one day going to be revealed, it's 10 days. As Paul would say in Romans 8, it's not worth even comparing. Your darkest day, not worth comparing to what he is doing for you and one day will occur and then finally in the rest of verse 10 Jesus says this he says be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life the crown of life that is given to us. I will give this to you, Jesus. says, What is the crown of life? There's two words in Greek for crown. There's one word, crown, like that a king or an emperor wears. The other type of crown is the crown that you would put on top of an athlete, a runner who's been victorious. Think of like a crown or a wreath of laurel green upon the head. This is the type of crown that Jesus is referring to. It's the crown of victory for an athlete. Imagine running a long, long race. You know our director of faith development, Cassie Schoenbeck, do you know her? She ran a triathlon, ran, swam, and biked a triathlon yesterday. I I heard she was doing that. I said, Cassie, here's my vow to you. I will never, ever be a part of a triathlon. Ever. Maybe that's why you have health problems. Okay. When I get a pity laugh like that, I'm looking at you, Chris Lazel. You could laugh a little bit more, okay? But then I looked over at my wife, and she gave a genuine laugh. It just filled up my heart. Imagine running a marathon, and you were going and going, and you're, chest is burning and your muscles are aching and then you get to that point where you just feel like rubber and you just can't hardly go another step imagine if you knew even before you started that marathon that you were guaranteed to be victorious you were the winner of it all that you traveled through time and it was a proven fact you were going to win in the midst of wanting to just give up you just think if I just keep going I am victorious that is the imagery that Jesus is showing us here you are already victorious through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He gives you that crown of life and of victory because he took the crown of thorns, of shame, of death for you. Things are so much worse than they seem to us. There's a spiritual battle every day, but things are so much better so much more amazing than they appear and I'm going to wrap up with this story this is a statue of a man named Polycarp Polycarp does not mean a lot of fish (laughs) I like the way he laughed more at that because I talked about the pity laugh earlier Polycarp doesn't mean a lot of fish Polycarp means much fruit bearing abundant fruit for the kingdom Polycarp was a member of the church in Smyrna, and when Jesus sent the letter in 96 AD, he would have been about 30 years old. He became a pastor of that church, and he became the bishop of that church in Smyrna, and when he was 86 years old, he was arrested by Rome, put on trial. His trial wasn't in a nice court, House. His trial took place in a Roman arena. Imagine Broncos Stadium, thousands of people shouting and cheering and hurling insults at him. And we have a description of what happened at this trial. And listen to what it says. It says, the Roman governor set Polycarp in the middle of the arena and confronted him and said, Curse Christ. Polycarp replied, Eighty six 6 years I have served him, "'and he never did me any wrong. "'How can I blaspheme my king who saved me?' The governor persisted, "'Swear by the fortune of Caesar!' And Polycarp answered, "'You do not know who I am. "'I am a Christian.'" The governor roared, I have wild beasts. I shall throw them to you. I shall have you consumed with fire. And then Polycarp finally replied, The fire you threaten burns but an hour and is quenched after a little. Why do you delay? Come, do what you will. Polycarp stood serenely defiant. It says the killing flames were lit around him and he died while the world watched. Last night I woke up at about 1.30 in the morning, couldn't sleep, and sometimes I wake up, I can't sleep. I go, well, I guess you woke me up, God, so I can talk to you. And I started praying, and I just ran, Jesus, help me to pursue a relationship with you and help me to to just find time to, to be with you more. And then I thought this in my mind, and I prayed this in my mind. I said, and God, help me to be more like Polycarp. And then I stopped. And I was like, I don't know if I want him to answer that prayer. And I tell you, I thought long and hard about that prayer. Helped me to become more like Polycarp, that bold, that sacrificial. Not even necessarily with my life, but just with my finances or with my time. For 300 years in the church history, 300 of the first years of the church, the heroes of the faith, the models of faith were the martyrs, were men and women like Polycarp who gave their lives away. Who are our heroes today in the church? I don't know. I know who are heroes in our society. It's entertainers who help us to forget about the reality of the sufferings of life or it's billionaires or tycoons or it's athletes. What if What if Christ is calling us as a congregation to be more like a Polycarp, to be more giving, more sacrificial as individuals, as a congregation? Can you pray, God, make me more like Polycarp? Can you? Christ alone be all the glory. Amen.